The Senate Foreign Relations Committee uh, will come to order. This is a nominations hearing for Rear Admiral Kenneth Braithwaite, who's the nominee to be the U.S. Ambassador to Norway, the Honorable Carlos Trujillo, who's the nominee to be the U.S. Ambassador to the Organization of American States, the Honorable Brock D. Bierman, who's the nominee to be the USAID Assistant Administrator for Europe and Eurasia, and Mr. Lee McClenney, who's the nominee to be the U.S. Ambassador to Paraguay. And we thank all of you for being here today and for your willingness to serve our country. Today, these four nominees are here for very different positions, but all important and are all influential areas of U.S. foreign policy. Each of you will have a critical role in advancing U.S. policy and objectives in your respective posts abroad and here in the United States. The Organization of American States describes itself as the oldest multilateral regional organization in the world. The main pillars of the OAS include democracy promotion, the protection of human rights, economic and social development, and regional security cooperation. Article 1 of the Inter-American Democratic Charter states, and I quote, the peoples of the Americas have a right to democracy and their governments have an obligation to promote and defend it. Democracy is essential for the social, political, and economic development of the peoples of the Americas, end quote. It is critical to empower the OAS to fulfill its mission, as stipulated in that Article 1 of the Inter-American Democratic Charter, and do so by working closely with our regional allies. Efforts to continue OAS engagement and security cooperation are indispensable to the stability of the region. Sadly, here in our own hemisphere, we still have dictatorial regimes that deprive citizens of their most fundamental rights. On the island of Cuba, the Cuban people have not been able to freely elect their leaders in 65 years and live under an oppressive regime. In Venezuela, the erosion and now cancellation of democracy and freedom is truly tragic and catastrophic and has led to a humanitarian disaster. In Nicaragua, we recently saw shocking reports of executions carried out by the military, including against innocent civilians. Our hemisphere clearly still has many challenges to overcome before the democratic ideals of the OAS Charter can fully be realized for all the people of the Americas. Moving on to Paraguay, we see a nation that plays a key role in joint efforts to promote and strengthen democracy, security, and counter-narcotics. Under the leadership of Admiral Tidd, commander of the U.S. Southern Command, the United States has supported efforts to fight transnational crime and counterterrorism in Paraguay. We must continue to build on our partnership with Paraguay, which is vulnerable to illicit trafficking of narcotics, weapons, illegal goods, and people. The tri-border area where Argentina, Brazil, and Paraguay meet is a place where the threat of illicit financing for criminal organizations and terrorists exists, terrorists including Hezbollah, and this has long been a concern. The U.S. needs to work with all three countries that share a responsibility for the tri-border area to better secure borders, reduce illicit trafficking, and improve counterterrorism monitoring. Although Paraguay has made extensive progress in fighting corruption, it is still ranked 123rd, 123 out of, 180, out of 176 in the Transparency International Corruption Perceptions Index for the year 2016. The U.S. is also an important trading partner for Paraguay. We should look for new ways to expand our trade relationship and help Paraguay grow their economy and strengthen their government institutions. Norway is one of our closest and most active security allies, especially given that its population is only 5 million people, or roughly the same size as where I live in South Florida. As a founding member of NATO, Norway has fought with us in conflicts ranging from the Balkans to the present-day operation in Afghanistan, it's also an important contributor to the fight against ISIS, putting boots on the ground in Jordan to help train Syrian freedom fighters. 
Beyond our security alliances, Norway shares our concerns about Russia's aggression and interference, particularly given that long border that the two countries share. Norway is an important contributor in other regions, including in our own Western Hemisphere. Oslo, for example, has pledged $22 million over three years to fund humanitarian demining in Colombia to support the peace process. And lastly, the United States Agency for International Development plays a critical role in promoting American interests and values abroad by supporting the advancement of freedom, human dignity, and development. In particular, USAID's Bureau for Europe and Eurasia is working to foster resilient and democratic societies, strengthen economic growth, and to support European Atlantic integration. We have seen countries in the region, such as Croatia and Montenegro, graduate, that's a quote, you know, in quotes, graduate from US foreign assistance. This is the objective. Our foreign assistance is critical towards building sustainable economic and security partnerships that not only improve the lives of citizens of these countries, but also are in our own national security interests. As Vladimir Putin's malign influence continues to spread throughout the region, particularly in nations already suffering from rampant corruption and organized crimes, the United States must be engaged and proactive in securing our interests and in promoting peace and prosperity throughout Europe and Eurasia. Although USAID's challenges can be overwhelming, especially with increased uh, Russian activities in the region, the Bureau for Europe and Eurasia that you will be overseeing if confirmed is more important than ever. So in closing, all of these positions have a key role to play in American foreign policy, and I thank you and I thank your families for your commitment to your country and your willingness to serve it. And, and now I turn to the ranking member. Well, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Um, and let me congratulate all our nominees on their nominations. Um, I continue to be concerned about the slow pace of nominations from the President and the vacancies at the State Department at USAID and at critical posts overseas, so I welcome this opportunity to hear from nominees for the Western Hemisphere and for positions that stretch the definition of the Western Hemisphere far beyond even my imagination. But we welcome you here all, and we're happy that the committee is actually serving as a vehicle for uh, moving your nominations. Uh, while you have been nominated to serve in a range of positions, you're all signing up for the same fundamental duty, to serve the interests of the United States of America, the American people, and to promote our foreign policy objectives through diplomacy and development. Uh, as a 25-year veteran of both the House and Senate Foreign Relations Committee, I think of no other position that is more significant in terms of both national security and national interest in the positions that our diplomats uh, serve abroad and our development people serve as well. So it's a high calling. I uh, also appreciate your families because these positions are a sacrifice, uh, not only of yourselves, but of your families, and uh, we appreciate that reality as well. Uh, and while we have several nominees beyond the normal jurisdiction of the committee, let me just say the OAS, as a uh, longtime observer and uh, someone who considers himself a Latin Americanist, is an incredibly important position. Uh, it is a position for which uh, I believe uh, we need vigorous leadership uh, in an institution that also needs greater reforms. Uh, I'm proud to have uh, sponsored the legislation that was signed into law uh, in 2013 that uh, urged management reforms at the OAS. Uh, and I'm pleased to see that the OAS has taken some of these reforms uh, on, uh, including its strategic vision uh, plan that aligns with parts of, our, of the law. But I think we can agree that probably more can be done, so I look forward to hearing from you in that regard. 
Uh, also, uh, the hemisphere, while we enjoy uh, overwhelmingly democracy, there are challenges and there is a backward slide. And I'm uh, really concerned uh, about what happens at the OAS as an institution to move, uh, particularly the democratic charter uh, of the OAS uh, as a vibrant document, one is that is living in its purpose, not simply as part of a uh, overall aspirational goal versus something that is being pursued. Uh, and so I appreciate that, I appreciate the, the AID work. I have long been supporter of uh, USAID. I think the development we work, we do, is an important part of our national security uh, and diplomacy interests, and that without it, uh, I think we cannot achieve many of the goals that we seek to achieve in the world, so I look forward to hearing from you. And Norway, you know, it's, it's one of those places in the world where often when we don't have trouble, so we don't talk about that country, uh, but it is an incredibly important country. Uh, has one of the largest sovereign wealth funds uh, in the world, uh, and also uh, incredibly important in terms of the challenges that we have uh, with Russia. Uh, so I look forward to hearing from you uh, very much so in that regard, and, and uh, as well as with Paraguay, as we are trying to develop this hemispheric further consolidation of democracy in the process, uh, maybe in some view, in some people's minds, a small country. I think it's an important country as it relates to that overall effort. So I look forward to hearing from all of you. I'll save the bulk of my time for questions. And with that, Mr. Chairman, I look forward to the witness's testimony. Thank you to the ranking member. And you're right that the scope is uh, broader. This is actually a hearing of the full committee being uh, chaired and, and co-chaired by a, uh, two Cuban Americans, which is a trend. Three would be a conspiracy. Uh, but uh, <laughs> Senator Cruz is not a member of the committee. so. All right, um, so well, let's begin with uh, the nomination of, uh, of Rear Admiral Kenneth Braithwaite, who's, um, and I'm sorry, let's begin with the nomination of Mr. Bierman and uh, Ambassador Pamela Smith, who served in the Foreign Service for over 30 years, uh, including a stint as our U.S. Ambassador to, to Moldova is here, and I'd like to recognize her to introduce Mr. Bierman. Thank you very much, Senator Rubio, uh, Senator Menendez. Um, it is a great honor to be here uh, to introduce Brock Bierman. He is really ideally suited to be USAID's Assistant Administrator for Europe and Eurasia. In over 30 years in the Foreign Service, I haven't met anyone whose talents, experience, and dedication uh, better match the demands of this challenging job. Brock was Chief of Staff for the same Bureau when we first met in 2003 when I was Ambassador to Moldova. With his hard work in Washington, our outstanding USAID mission helped that friendly, struggling little country uh, cope with the grueling transition from east to west and from communism to democracy and a market economy, a journey that is regrettably not yet complete. I couldn't have been more impressed with Brock's pragmatism, tenacity, and sensitivity to the dynamics of a complex political environment. I could also see that while his heart and some family roots were in Moldova, uh, his results-oriented approach made him just as effective in the entire region. Brock brings not just five years of success in the same bureau he has been nominated for, he also is committed philosophically to foreign assistance as a key tool of foreign policy, as a national security priority. With Russia playing, as you said, an aggressive and pernicious role in the region, 
and with violent extremism and destabilizing floods of refugees on the rise. We need people working there with seasoned expertise, people like Brock, who can gauge trends and use our assistance to help consolidate democracy and combat the fracturing of the West. Since the breakup of the Soviet Union, 12 of the 24 country programs receiving assistance from USAID's Bureau of uh, Europe and, and Eurasia have graduated, as you noted, and joined the Euro-Atlantic community through such institutions as NATO and the EU. I spent much of my career in the Balkans, and believe me, this is an astounding track record. Uh, the next 11 countries will be much harder, but it seems to me that someone who knows the region, the bureau, the agency, and the administrator well has the best chance to build on this success. Brock and I have stayed friends since our time advancing U.S. interests in Moldova. I just want to share a few more words about him. His engagement in the region preceded his first assignment uh, in USAID and continued after he left the agency. This region is his personal passion. You should know that he served three terms as a state legislator in Rhode Island and thus grasps the special relationship between government institutions and legislative bodies. He's also owned and operated several small businesses and has sat on many nonprofit boards and commissions. He knows how things work, how to make them work, and he's developed people skills that suit many circumstances. His experience outside the Beltway also gives him a unique ability to think outside the box. Importantly, he thoroughly believes in bipartisanship. Our friendship wouldn't exist otherwise. Um, his work with, with you will prov prove this immediately. We're lucky to have someone of Brock's caliber put forward for this important position. He has my unqualified endorsement. He will serve the United States well and honorably, and I urge you to support his nomination. Thank you. Thank you so much. And uh, so uh, let's begin. Uh, um Mr. Bierman, thank you for being here and your willingness to serve and, and you're recognized. And by the way, for all the nominees, you, you, your opening statements are already in the record. So we won't be held against you if you abbreviate it. It won't be held against you if you skip them. I'm not asking you to. But, uh, but, um, but uh, obviously, the shorter they are, the more time we'll have to inter interact with all of you. So just a suggestion. Won't count against you. But anyway, thank you for being here and you're recognized, sir. Thank you. Well, thank you, uh, and good morning, Mr. Chairman, Ranking Member, and members of the committee. And actually, I can take out the sentence about full statement being entered, because I did shorten it. Um, well, I just want to say um, uh, I'm grateful for the opportunity to testify before you today as President Trump's nominee to be Assistant Administrator for the Bureau for Europe and Eurasia at USAID. I would like to thank President Trump, Administrator Green, and Secretary Tillerson for their support. I would also like to thank Acting Assistant Administrator Margot Ellis, who is here today, who has led the Bureau since January, and her staff, who were invaluable as I prepared for my hearing, having spent more than five years working in the European Eurasia Bureau from 2002 to 2007, it has been wonderful to reconnect with many former colleagues. And of course, I want to thank Pamela Smith, Ambassador Smith, for her kind introductory remarks. Ambassador Smith's work in Moldova has demonstrated the importance of American leadership and she has been a mentor of mine since we met. Most importantly, I want to thank my family, my wife and best friend of more than 30 years, Lisa, who's sitting behind me, and my, my children, Allison and Robert, who are sitting behind my wife. Uh, they are the most important inspiration, and without their love and support, I would not be sitting here today. <clears throat> I want to start out by telling you that I am a second-generation American. 
my grandfather came to the United States in 1906 from what now is the Republic of Moldova. He quickly learned what it meant to live in this country and what made our country great. He understood the importance of our democratic systems and volunteers to serve his new country during the First World War. Upon returning from the war, he served his community as a leader and philanthropist. And to quote uh, one of America's leading historians, David McCullough, in his recent book, The American Spirit, he said, and I quote, history is about who we are and what we stand for, and it is essential to our understanding of our role and what it should be in our time. In many ways, I sit here today as a direct result of who we are as a country. My grandfather exemplified the American spirit, which I believe defines this nation and is at the heart of what USAID does. In 1997, while serving in the Rhode Island State Legislature, I participated with an exchange program with the American Council of Young Political Leaders, a nonpartisan organization that introduces next generation leaders to politics and governance of other countries. Knowing that my grandfather lived within the Russian Empire, I decided to participate in the Russian exchange program, and interacting with Russian legislators at the time not only gave me a new perspective on my job as a state legislator, but also was the beginning of my passionate interest in the region. I returned to Eastern Europe in 1999 when Senator John Chafee made it possible for me to join the International Republican Institute as a volunteer trainer in Ukraine. While traveling from Kyiv to Odessa, I shared my own experience with democracy and helped Ukrainians of all parties learn more about our system of government. In 2002, I was privileged to serve as Chief of Staff for the Europe and Eurasia Bureau. And while at USAID, I developed a region-wide initiative that brought young people together from, difficult, from different political parties to talk about problems facing the region and how to solve those problems. If confirmed, I look forward to continuing these efforts. While at aid, I was also proud to support opportunities for professional development and training of our staff. If confirmed, I will support every member of the Europe and Eurasia Bureau through professional development, capacity building, and training. Now, as you know, Ambassador Green has said USAID's objective is to end the need for foreign assistance, and I'm excited to advance uh, this priority. If confirmed, I look forward to working with you. I look forward to working with Administrator Green and the dedicated staff in the E&E Bureau to support U.S. national security interests. I also think that Administrator Green's priority to respect the taxpayers' investment in foreign aid is critical. If confirmed, I look forward to, I look, I, if confirmed, I look forward to ensuring USAID's programs in Europe and Eurasia are effective and efficient, while also demonstrating USAID's work, how USAID's work brings stability and prosperity overseas, which in turn benefits neighborhoods across America. I also look forward to spending time listening to my colleagues, both here in Washington and in the field, as their perspectives will be vital to developing a successful course of action. The challenges of Europe and Eurasia look a lot different now than when they did when I was previously at USAID. The challenges cannot be overstated. The region has been hit with a major economic recession. Russia's malign influence is a serious problem. Russia has violated the territorial integrity of Georgia and Ukraine and is interfering with the inter internal affairs of several other countries in the region. In many ways, our efforts to counter this pervasive undercurrent will also serve to prevent the spread of violent extremism in Europe and Eurasia. As Administrator Green has stated, terrorist groups often feed on frustration and despair. The American spirit and the ideals that it reflects is our most valuable export. It serves as a counter to this frustration and despair.
The Europe and Eurasia Bureau faces other critical challenges, such as government corruption, weak economies, fragile democratic institutions, and energy dependence on Russia. I look forward to exploring those topics in greater depth today and working with your staffs to answering any questions you might have. If confirmed, I look forward to working with you to address these critical issues. And in closing, I wish to thank the committee for their dedication to the American spirit. Thank you. Thank you, Admiral Braithwaite. Braithwaite, thank you for being here. Chairman Rubio, uh, Ranking Member Menendez, and uh, distinguished members of the committee, um, it is an honor and a privilege to appear before you today as the President's nominee to be the United States Ambassador to the Kingdom of Norway. It's almost impossible for me to capture in five minutes the words to adequately define how I feel should I be confirmed to be able to once again serve our great nation and the people of the United States. I would like to thank President Trump and Secretary Tillerson for their confidence, their faith and trust in me to serve as our nation's envoy to Norway. I can think of few greater honors than to be the principal representative of the United States to such an important strategic ally. I would also like to thank several mentors who have guided me directly and indirectly as I have developed in my service to our nation. My first commanding officer, Admiral Tom Lynch, former superintendent of the Naval Academy. Ambassador Ryan Crocker, who I served under in Islamabad. Ms. Ushi Kessler, a U.S. Olympian and my life coach who is with me today, and my best friend, Mr. David Urban, a West Point graduate, and proof that the Army and the Navy can get along well. Finally, and most especially, I wouldn't be here without my wife, Melissa, and our two children, Grace and Harrison, who are with me today to support me, hopefully once again, in service to our nation together. I am reminded, as Senator Arlen Specter told me so many years ago when I worked for him, that the reason we serve is to ensure that our children and our children's children inherit the same great country that we received from those who went before us. After 31 years in the uniform of our nation, I intend with your approval, sirs, to once again do all I can to uphold that sacred responsibility. Our relationship with the Kingdom of Norway is truly a special one for so many reasons, built upon a shared commitment to the idea that freedom is a sacred privilege that must be protected vigilantly Norway has stood closely by the United States in many conflicts since its independence from Sweden in 1905. Norway was one of the first nations to stand with us in Afghanistan following attacks of September 11th of 2001, and as the chairman noted, continues to contribute troops to NATO's resolute support mission in Afghanistan. As a founding NATO ally, Norway is the key guardian of our northern flank of this important alliance, standing watch over a vast Arctic frontier. Norwegians have demonstrated time and again their commitment to ensuring that regional aggressor nations do not threaten ours or our allies' interests. As a young naval officer during bilateral carrier battle group operations in the fjords, and later as a senior officer operating upon the Baltic Sea in joint fleet exercises, I personally witnessed, sir, the Norwegian military's incredibly impressive capabilities at sea and ashore. They are without doubt a highly valued and greatly trusted ally. Norway also shares our faith in a strong market-based economy. Norwegians have established one of the most secure markets in the world, and only earlier this year, their National Sovereign Wealth Fund reached an unprecedented achievement by surpassing $1 trillion. This stability affords them the opportunity to look towards new and innovative technologies and other investments seeking partner nations such as the United States with which to pursue greater economic strength. Looking to the future, should you, should you confirm my nomination, I would seek to pursue three principal objectives for the United States and our partnership with Norway. First and foremost, I would seek to reaffirm that our commitment to NATO 
remains as strong as ever. The President and Secretary Tillerson, along with Secretary Mattis, have stated repeatedly that we stand behind Article 5 and fully recognize the importance of a strong and adequately funded North Atlantic Treaty Organization. Secondly, I would seek to strengthen even further our investment and trade ties. I would work with U.S. businesses to seek opportunities to expand into growing Norwegian markets by exploring ways for Norwegian businesses to work in collaboration with U.S. companies in markets here and abroad. And finally, I would do everything in my power to work closely with the Norwegian government to ensure the safety and security of Americans abroad, whether engaged in business, academic exchange, research collaboration, or the pleasure of just traveling to such a wonderful nation as Norway. All free peoples are at risk of terrorist attacks today across the globe. So working closely with Norwegian security agencies, I would seek to extend an umbrella of safety over our respective nations. As I close, I am reminded of something my father said to me as a young boy. My dad, Private First Class Kenneth J. Braithwaite Sr., was severely wounded, shot in the head in France shortly after landing in the very first wave upon the beaches of Normandy on June 6th of 1944. He loved our country and all it stood for and was the first person, along with my mother Sylvia, to instill in me a sense of pride in our nation and a sense of duty and service above self. I asked him once how he did it, how he exited that landing craft that morning with enemy bullets hitting all around him. He said simply, it was my duty, son. My father, although humble to a fault, was proud to have served to ensure our American dream could persevere. He told me as a young boy that anything was possible in America if you applied yourself and worked to realize your dream. He and my mother were very proud when I went off to the U.S. Naval Academy, both having never had the opportunity to attend college, nor being able to really afford to send me. I can't help but reflect upon my father's life, that his sacrifice and duty to our nation is today realized. His son, here before you, nominated to be the United States Ambassador to the Kingdom of Norway. In America, the home of the free and the land of the brave, anything is possible. Mr. Chairman, Mr. Ranking Member, I'm honored to be here and I look forward to your questions. Thank you very much, sir. Representative Trujillo. Thank you, Chairman Rubio, Ranking Member Menendez, and members of the committee. It's an honor to appear before you today as President Trump's nominee to the United States Permanent Representative to the Organization of American States. I want to thank the President for his confidence in me and the opportunity, with your approval, to represent the American people during a critical period in the history of the Western Hemisphere. Before I begin, I would like to take, I would like to take an opportunity to express my gratitude to those who have supported me along the way. My wife, Carmen, who's present today, along with our four children, Carlos, Isabela, Juan Pablo, and Felipe, along with my mother and in-laws, Consuelo, and my mother, Georgina Hernandez, and in-laws, Consuelo, and Hector Mir, who are also present. Uh, my father, Ruben Trujillo, who's watching from home, my step-parents, Hector and Jemay, and my grandparents, Manuel and Alba Fernandez, and Ruben and Mirta Trujillo. I know today is a remarkable day for my grandparents. They arrived in this country exactly 50 years ago from Cuba with nothing. This country has been our safe harbor and our greatest blessing. For me to stand here before this august body is a testament to the American dream and the power of education and hard work. By way of background, I'm currently the special advisor at the United, U.S. Mission to the United Nations. That job has uniquely prepared me for the challenges that come ahead. In addition, my mix of public, private, and professional experience has given me a set of skills that I hope to be able to employ on behalf of the United States of America and in service to its people. I have served as a prosecutor fighting for dignity and justice for all. 
I've also served on the board of directors of the, largest, the fourth largest public hospital in the country, the Jackson Memorial Hospital Public Health Trust. And there I learned that people from all over the world still strive for a better and higher quality of life. I've served as a state legislator elected for four times in one of the largest states in the nation. There I've served as the chairman of the Florida House of Representatives Appropriations Committee, which oversees an $83 billion budget. My experience working in the legislative body and negotiating delicate, confidential, and immensely important matters will only complement my service to the United States in this honorable capacity to which I've been nominated. In my private life, I'm a graduate of Spring Hill College and the Florida State University College of Law. I've built a small and successful business along with my partners. I, fa I founded and managed a mid-sized Hispanic-owned law firm with more than 50 employees. We have weathered the storms of recession and strife, and I've learned much about the importance of tact, tenacity, integrity, and perseverance, which has served me throughout my career in public service. If confirmed, it will be an honor for me to advance the U.S. foreign policy interests throughout the OAS, a noble organization that remains the preeminent multilateral forum for our region, the Americas. OAS and the inter-American system were created to promote democracy and the rule of law in the Americas, to promote and protect human rights and fundamental freedoms, to advance the security of our citizens, foster economic, economic development and prosperity, and to uphold the practices, purposes, and principles set forth in the chart of the Organization of American States, the American Declaration on the Rights and Duties of Man, and the Inter-American Democratic Charter in accordance with the United States Constitution. These instruments embody the shared democratic values that make the Americas unique and make our own country great. If confirmed, I pledge to do my utmost to ensure that the OAS lives up to its legacy as it confronts today's daunting challenge. I will also work to make sure American taxpayers are getting a fair return for their investment in the OAS by working to build a stronger, more efficient, and more effective organization. Through tough but good faith negotiations with member states, we can achieve a broader, more sustainable financial base for the OAS that does not depend so heavily on a single country. In keeping with the objectives outlined in the Organization of American States Revitalization Reform Act of 2013. If confirmed, I look forward to leading the U.S. mission to the OAS and advancing the above-mentioned goals. I believe that my past experience has prepared me, if confirmed by the Senate, to serve more effectively as a United States permanent representative to the Organization of American States. I'm cognizant of the difficulties that have historically and currently faced the region. If confirmed, I promise to work closely with you, with the executive branch, and all those concerned in advancing the goals of the American people. Chairman, ranking member, and members of the committee, it's an honor to appear before you today, and I look forward to your comments, humbly ask for your support, and look forward to answering your questions. Thank you. Yeah, we were just commenting. You were a whole minute under on your statement. Very good. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> just a joke. Mr. McClenney. <laughs> good morning, Chairman Rubio, ranking member Menendez. It's an honor for me to be selected by Secretary Tillerson and nominated by President Trump to be the next ambassador to the Republic of Paraguay. I'm deeply pleased to enjoy the invaluable support of my family, friends, and colleagues, some present here today, and most especially the support of my wife, Catherine, who's following today's proceedings uh, from our posting in Caracas, Venezuela. Mr. Chairman, I've been privileged to serve our nation for some 30 years as a career foreign service officer, working to achieve our foreign policy goals and national security objectives. My nine overseas postings have been predominantly in the Western Hemisphere. Paraguay today is one of our most like-minded partners in this hemisphere. It is clear that the Paraguayan people take the view, as we do ourselves, that sustained prosperity and long-term stability and security are inextricably linked to democratic governance and transparent and efficient institutions. If confirmed for this position, I pledge to continue our ongoing efforts to strengthen our mutually advantageous ties with Paraguay 
to continue to assist Paraguay with its efforts to build durable and independent institutions, to grow a strong and resilient economy, improve government transparency, and weed out corruption. These elements will strengthen Paraguay as a bilateral and regional partner and build support for critical U.S. priorities in this region, including fighting money laundering and financial crime, strengthening intellectual property rights protections. If confirmed, I pledge to continue to support Paraguay's pursuit of transnational criminal organizations that abuse that nation's territory to commit a range of crimes, including contributing to the financing of known terrorist groups and trafficking in narcotics, weapons, counterfeit goods, and people. Paraguay has a steadily expanding open market economy and progressive trade policies that make it increasingly attractive to the U.S. and to other international uh, firms. Paraguay actively seeks involvement from U.S. companies in the country's growing role as a manufacturing and logistics hub for the much larger economies of Argentina and Brazil. We export some $2 billion worth of goods to Paraguay each year, and we enjoy a strongly positive bilateral trade balance. Paraguay's agricultural sector produces many of the same products as the United States, notably soy and beef cattle. But this creates opportunities for the export of advanced U.S. technology, agricultural services, and other synergistic trade relationships. Paraguayans admire the high quality of U.S. products, and a sustainably growing and inclusive Paraguayan economy will continue to increase demand for U.S. goods and services. If confirmed, I will work to expand our trade for the benefit of both nations. Paraguay's economic success advances U.S. economic success. Our two nations have a long history of strong people-to-people -people ties, especially through the more than 5,000 Peace Corps volunteers who have served there since the program began in 1966. If confirmed, I will also support the Peace Corps program in Paraguay, as well as our embassy's flourishing programs to support English language teaching and learning, science education, and higher educational exchanges. These programs are especially valuable to reach the 44% of Paraguay's population that is younger than 25 years of age. They will also help and strengthen people-to-people uh, -people ties, foster mutual understanding, and encourage greater engagement between our two nations. I look forward, if confirmed for this position, to working closely with Congress to advance our national interests by further strengthening our positive relationship with the Republic of Paraguay as that nation builds its economy, strengthens its democratic institutions, confronts international criminal and terrorist actors, and plays an ever larger role on the international stage including especially leading in regional and international efforts to defend human rights and democracy in Venezuela. I would be delighted to respond to any questions you may have. Thank you very much. Thank you. And I'll, I'm going to defer my opening questions to the ranking member, Senator Menendez. Well, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you all for your statements. Uh, let me ask all of our nominees of this question. A simple yes or no would suffice. It's a question that I've asked uh, of uh, every nominee uh, that has been before us, uh, and without commenting on the potential impact, uh, do you believe that Russia interfered in the 2016 presidential elections? And I ask, because in our own hemisphere, as Mr. Trujillo in a visit with me yesterday noted, um, there's going to be at least six countries that are going to be holding elections in the hemisphere. We know that Russia has ramped up various activities there. Obviously, for your portfolios, uh, Rear Admiral Braitworth and Mr. Bierman, this is quite salient. Uh, so I'm not asking whether or not they actually created an impact. I'm asking whether or not you believe that they actually sought to interfere. So a yes or no would suffice. Yes, sir. As you know, uh, the Norwegian groups were paid for oh, I'm sorry. Thank you. 
Uh, yes, sir. As you know, the Norwegians moved to a paper ballot in September because of that concern. Thank you for the question. Yes, Senator. Yes, Senator. I also see their involvement and influence in Venezuela, where I serve currently. Thank you. I'm, I'm, I appreciate that, because if we understand that they are a challenge, then we have to think about how we deal with that challenge. So, uh, Now, Mr. Trujillo, I want to thank you for stopping by yesterday. Uh, I appreciate our conversation. And um, let me pick up uh, on some of the OAS institutional issues uh, questions that I have. You noted to me yesterday that one of your priorities was restoring credibility to the OAS, specifically noting that some Caribbean countries who have failed to condemn the current human rights and humanitarian crisis in Venezuela, for example, is an issue. So tell me, how do you, and the committee, how do you plan to engage with these countries? What specific tools in our diplomatic arsenal do you believe will be most effective at motivating other countries to stand up for the Inter-American Democratic Charter? Thank you, Senator, for the question. You know, I think it's extremely important for these countries to realize the importance of the humanitarian side that's happening in Venezuela. Um, I also think it's very important for the uh, congressional support. Um, I've reviewed the Humanitarian and Defense of Democracy uh, Act in Venezuela that was sponsored by uh, Senator Rubin and Senator Cardin. I think the independence, the energy independence for the Caribbean countries will ultimately help us accomplish that goal. Uh, but ultimately, I think it's very important for them to understand the importance of the humanitarian side, the importance of democracy, and how important that is to the United States and to the region. Um, I hope you look at other tools of diplomacy that we have in our universe, although you're not going to be a bilateral representative to any of these countries, obviously, in a multilateral in institution. Uh, there are still opportunities working with your colleagues throughout the hemisphere to think about the other elements of American diplomacy, use of aid, trade, uh, international opinion, and sometimes when it is appropriate, the denial of that aid or trade uh, at the end of the day. So I'd like you to think about some of those. Uh, I want to ask you, do you believe that high-level representation of the United States at international organizations is important? Yes, I do, Senator. And I appreciate that answer because Secretary Tillerson has yet to attend a ministerial level meeting of the OAS. And that sends a hemispheric uh, impression. Um, now, I know that when we spoke yesterday, I asked you whether you had met with the secretary, and that's not the case. By the way, have any of you met with the secretary as it relates to the nominations that you've received? No, sir. No, sir. Mr. Bierman? <clears throat> no, I have not. Okay. So um, I, I hope that if you are confirmed, will you uh, recommend to the secretary that at some point he personally participate uh, in critical OAS uh, meetings? I will, Senator. All right. Um, let me ask you about the reform bill that we passed in 2013, which I referenced in my opening comments, uh, I authored and passed that legislation into law, which urges management reforms of the OAS. And as I said, their 2014 strategic vision aligns with parts of that law, but I think we can do more. Do you think the State Department has developed a successful strategy as it relates to pursuing OAS reform? How would you evaluate the State Department's implementation of the law? And, what components, I don't know if you're familiar with the law, I know I mentioned it to you yesterday, uh, of reform would you specifically focus on beyond obviously pursuing a more vigorous response of countries of the Democratic Charter? 
Well, I think, Senator, what's really important uh, is just the governance of, of the institution. From a managerial perspective, the United States contribution should not exceed 50%. As far as the OAS, uh, the U.S. mission to the OAS, their response in Cancun, they were very successful in achieving that. It's a five-year glide path. We're hopeful of reaching it. Uh, if I am confirmed, I will definitely work towards being successful in accomplishing those goals. But the financial integrity, um, aside from the charter, which, uh, but the financial and the governance of the institution is of foremost importance. Okay, now, I, uh, Mr. Chairman, my time has expired, but if there's no one else, I do have uh, one other question for you, and then I'd like to turn to uh, one of our other uh, nominees. Now, I have spent uh, the better part of uh, a quarter of a century in Congress trying to improve our immigration laws and the, law, and the lives of immigrants in their communities. And unfortunately, in the past few years, we've seen a surge of Central American migrants fleeing violence, oppression, and poverty. And when I engage with ambassadors from Central American countries, their primary focus is protecting their citizens, uh, not only from the challenges they have at home, uh, but from immigration orders that tear families apart and potentially incur other devastating consequences. In 2015, you authored what I would consider a draconian bill in the Florida, Florida legislature that would have made not complying with the deportation order a felony punishable to up to 30 years in prison. Uh, so I want to give you a chance on the record, because I know this is going to be pursued by others. And so I figured in fairness to you, I want to give, give you a chance on the record uh, to give me a sense of what, what you meant by that bill. Uh, because when you get, deal with the ambassadors of these countries, they're going to know this, and they're going to say to themselves, uh, you know, you want me to vote in a certain way. Some of these countries, uh, Mexico, Guatemala, and others in Central America are good partners with us at the OAS. So this is going to be, you know, a, a bit of a challenge, and I want to hear how you, both what your intent was and how you're going to deal with that. Well, thank you for the question, Senator. I would not have supported that bill in the form it was drafted. It was poorly drafted, and it never captured my original intent. My original intent for that bill was to codify the federal statute of illegal reentry post-deportation, post all of due process being exhausted. As far as dealing uh, with other uh, ambassadors at the OAS, if I am confirmed, I think I would discuss the, my body of work in the state legislature. Uh, I supported kid care. I supported a permanent resident of the United States being able to practice law in the state of Florida. I supported in-state tuition. Uh, so overall, the comprehensive work that I did towards immigration reform, given the confines of being a member of the state legislature, um, I would definitely discuss that with them. Well, it speaks volumes about the, the need to make sure, which uh, I know we agonize here, with uh, what we introduced being what our intent was. And so um, uh, if you're to be confirmed as the ambassador to the OAS, uh, what resolutions we pursue and how they're drafted are going to be incredibly important. So uh, I hope that that is an experiential factor that you'll take with you to the, to the institution. Uh, Mr. Bierman, um, I, I appreciate your past service. Um, according to USAID and the E&E Bureau, it seeks to promote resilient and democratic societies, strengthen economic growth and energy security, support European Atlantic integration to realize a region that is whole, free, and at peace. Now, I would argue in the face of ongoing Russian military aggression and disinformation campaigns aimed at eroding democratic institutions and Western alliances, this mission has never been more important. Uh, now, the question uh, I'd like to get a sense of you is, are you feel you're going to have the resources necessary to can, uh, carry out your mandated uh, duties? Uh, the request for FY18 of the budget 
would eliminate, eliminate, not reduce, eliminate assistance for Eastern Europe and Central Asia. I don't know how those proposed cuts serve the national interests of the United States, uh, and I know you aren't there to have been an advocate uh, of what the budget is, uh, but if confirmed, that statement that I read about a core mission is going to be very difficult to pursue uh, without the resources, for example, Ukraine that is suffering under direct military occupation by Russia. Um, so give me a sense of how you're going to meet that challenge. Well, well, thank you very much, Senator, for that question. And, and thank you to the entire committee for this, their work on this specific issue. I think uh, Senator Cardin's work specifically in addressing the increase in resources in our region has been critical um, in our efforts over the last um, two years. Um, as you can see, we've had a significant increase since 2015. Uh, and I, I would like to um, just... Now an increase of the budget calls for an elimination. Well, I have not had a chance to actually work on those specific details, but I do look forward to working um, once I'm, if I'm confirmed, uh, specifically within the administration and being an advocate for foreign assistance and its value, and then working again with your committee to try to address those specific issues. I, I also would very quickly just like to thank you for your question earlier about Russian influence in elections because it's having an impact in every country, not just covertly, but openly. Uh, I was at, in Moldova in 2014, and I saw uh, open uh, uh, campaigning of President Putin with, the, uh, with a number of different political, or at least one specific political party. So it, it's, a, um, it's an open campaign as well as a covert campaign. And I also want to thank you for your question regarding working with our partners. Um, I, I think it's very important. I'm looking forward to working with my European partners in the EU specifically on resources and how uh, we can work together to uh, uh, have a, a larger impact on our, our uh, role. But I, um, I do think that um, once, if confirmed, I am looking forward to working with you and the committee specifically on how to address the resource issue in our, in our area. Well, I appreciate that answer because, and I'll close on this, Mr. Chairman, the rest of my questions I'll submit for the record. Um, earlier this month, a Washington Post article uh, opened with a disheartening headline. Uh, it said, uh, and I appreciate the chairman who has been supportive of uh, some of my efforts when we were uh, marking up here on USAID. Uh, for the foreseeable future, this is the headline, the developing world will have fewer American engineers, economists, teachers, and health workers to help prepare for the future, referring to the abrupt cancellation notices to 178 people previously accepted into foreign service positions. So one of the questions I was going to ask you, but you've preempted it, is if you are confirmed, hopefully you will be an advocate internally uh, for, and I supported Ambassador Green uh, to be the administrator. I want to see every dollar used, used wisely. I want to see every dollar used, used effectively. But if we don't believe that uh, as we work to that goal of never needing foreign assistance again, <laughs> but we're not there by any stretch of the imagination. If we don't believe that this is a critical element of U.S. foreign policy, then we are incredibly short-sighted. So I, I hope that you will use your experience to explain how this is actually a force, a force multiplier and an opportunity. If I might, uh, I would like to say that the E&E Bureau specifically has been a model for success. Eleven of our countries are now members of the EU, countries that we had missions in. 
Um, as you probably heard through my statement, I'm a historian by nature. And um, heard in the same book that David McCullough wrote, he, he mentioned that in order to chart a path forward, we have to have an, an understanding of the past. And in many ways, um, sometimes I think it's like planting cut flowers. If there's no root, there's no foundation, there's no understanding of the past, then it's, it's not going to last. So I think it's important that we have a strong foundation in E&E, &E, and I'm looking forward to working with you and the committee on that. Thank you. And Mr. Trujillo, uh, your sons have made me feel very at home because they are doing what my kids used to do when I used to talk. So, <laughs> they're lovely. All right, thank you, Mr. Chairman. But we'll see now if they wake up when I talk. <laughs> Let's let just begin with, I want to follow up on a question that, um, that the ranking member asked. Uh, who, who, who is the highest ranking State Department official that any of you have met with you know, in preparation for or in anticipation of your nomination with regards to this posting? I have met with Ambas uh, Administrator Green. And uh, we've had several discussions, specifically, by the way, I will say, on working with our European uh, partner. So it actually addresses the, the ranking member's question earlier, but I have met with Ambassador Green and have substantive que uh, comments with him. Admiral? Uh, Deputy Secretary Sullivan, sir. Uh, Kevin Sullivan over at the OAS. Uh, officials within the Bureau of Western Hemisphere Affairs, and I'll be meeting with Undersecretary Shannon later today. Okay. Uh, this question is a kind of a more open-ended one. We'll give you an opportunity to expand on your opening comments for each of you. And uh, in fairness, since you've gone last every time, Mr. McLean, we'll start with you. Plus, you have a pretty tough post right now, so I think you deserve a, a little benefit here, given the current challenges that you face in the very difficult posting. Um, what is the greatest central challenge, if confirmed, in your in your new assignment, in your new post? Thank you for the question, Senator. Uh, I, I, think the, I think the greatest challenge will be continuing uh, uh, the policy of engagement that, we have in, that we've uh, manifested, that we've executed over the recent years to carry Paraguay's uh, own efforts forward on the areas of judicial transparency, uh, fighting corruption, fighting transnational criminal uh, organizations, uh, as well as uh, terrorist financing. Uh, I think in your remarks, sir, you made reference to something uh, that has been uh, a constant and returning, recurring issue of concern uh, in the Western Hemisphere, and that's activities of an illegal and uh, terrorist nature taking place or emanating from the tri-border region. Uh, I agree completely with the comment you made that this is uh, a problem that's been uh, – it's a problem that we've been observing closely and we've been working against for a number of years. Uh, there's a lot of smoke. It continues, uh, it continues to be a source of uh, a great deal of concern uh, for all of us. It will require work, uh, uh, if confirmed, on the part of myself and the staff in the embassy in Asuncion, but also from my colleagues across the border in Argentina and in Brazil. Uh, I pledge uh, to, ver to pay very close attention to what's going on in the tri-border region uh, because it's an area of great concern and it has been for many years. And just to expound on that for a second, and I apologize to the other uh, nominees, we'll get to you in a moment on the same question. Um, when you talk about the tri-border region, for those who may not be familiar with what exactly, you were actually referring to Hezbollah. And a lot of people think about Hezbollah as a threat in the Middle East, and, and to the extent that their engagement in the Western Hemisphere exists, it's largely been viewed as a fundraising mechanism, a place where they conduct illicit activities to raise money and send back. But just today, there was an open source report in one of the uh, press outlets 
about an increasing concern about Hezbollah scouting and surveilling and preparing contingency plans for activities against the United States and its interests in the Western Hemisphere, and potentially having carried out those in the past in the Western Hemisphere. In the case of a conflict either with Hezbollah and or Iran, they would serve as a proxy. In essence, if the US entered into some sort of conflict, the Iranian could order Hezbollah to conduct asymmetrical attacks both against the homeland and in the Western Hemisphere against US interests uh, in a way that gives them a level of deniability publicly, but we would know, and it would be a price that they, they would want us to know that we would have to pay. And so, uh, in particular with the threat of Hezbollah, uh, it is your view that Hezbollah poses both, uh, it's, that it's no longer, that they pose both obviously a financial threat in terms of their, but also a potential operational threat. Uh, it's my view, based on the information that I've seen, sir, that there is an actual financial uh, fundraising threat that's ongoing, current, and requires attention, and that there is a potential for an operational threat in the future. I've not seen any information to indicate that uh, Hezbollah is operationally active in the tri-border region at this point in time, but completely concur, agree with your view that this is something that must be watched very closely. Representative Trujillo, the same question on the, on the broader challenge. Thank you, Senator. I think the broader challenge is the backward slides in democracy. Uh, if you look at the situation in Venezuela where they've gone over the last 15 years and how that spilled out over the region, it's something that will continue to affect the region for years to come. The humanitarian issues, uh, the lack of democracy, the lack of elections, uh, corruption. I, I think when you look at the Panama Papers and Odebrecht and how that corruption starts really challenging people's trust in a democratic system. I think that is, is definitely a challenge facing the region. And going forward as the elections, as Senator Menendez mentioned, over the next year, uh, the six, maybe seven elections that will take place, the outcomes of those elections, and making sure that not only are they democratic in nature and fair and transparent, but also that those leaders govern democratically once they are elected. Admiral? Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Um, I would have to say uh, the Arctic, sir. And uh, specifically, uh, the Arctic is a top strategic uh, foreign policy uh, priority uh, for the Norwegians and, uh, and the United States in our partnership with them. Uh, but specifically, the remilitarization uh, of the region by the, uh, the Russians. Um, as you know, sir, uh, the uh, Russians have uh, reinstituted strategic bomber flights uh, along the Norwegian coast. Uh, they have uh, reestablished uh, both land um, and closer to my roots, uh, naval forces on the Kola Peninsula. Um, including uh, their brand new Bori class uh, uh, ballistic missile submarine. So I think that uh, our challenges are going to be to assure the Norwegians that we are there. Uh, we've created a number of uh, interoperability uh, opportunities with us with the Joint Strike Fighter and the P-8 Poseidon aircraft. Um, with my roots as a former anti-submarine warfare pilot who uh, spent a lot of time uh, hunting then Soviet submarines, I think it's going to be at the forefront uh, if I were confirmed. Uh, during my time in Oslo, working very closely with the Norwegian government uh, and keeping eyes on uh, our friends in Russia. Thank you, sir. Mr. Premier. As I mentioned earlier, Russian malign influence is going to be a top priority uh, along with fighting ex extreme, violent extremism. Um, but on a, on a micro level, I think youth unemployment is of great concern, specifically in the Balkans. Some of our, our countries are seeing uh, a better than 50% unemployment rate between the ages of 18 and 25. And I think that that's a serious issue, and it raises issues beyond uh, unemployment. Um, I also think that um, open media and, and a, fair, uh, a free media is of something of great concern and, and a top priority. And, and lastly, I think dis, uh, decentralization is very important as we work with local communities to try to involve the local communities in government governance and uh, open and fair elections. Thank you. Uh, 
Senator Kane, by the way, to, to Mr. Trujillo McClendon, he speaks Spanish very well. He's very tricky about that. You, you, uh, he didn't let on, but he does. He speaks very well. He, he, but we're going to do this in English today. He's over, overstating uh, mi habilidad. Um, but thank you all, and, and uh, congratulations on your, uh, on your nominations for these important positions. Let me just ask each of you a couple of questions. Um, um, Mr. Trio, first uh, to you. The Inter-American Commission on Human Rights, it's, it's long been considered one of the crown jewels of the OAS, and it's been a critical forum to focus on human rights issues, and it often is a target uh, because of that focus, and it's a target from folks on both the left and the right. Uh, what's your assessment of the commission at this point, and what steps will you take to make sure that it is defended and appropriately funded, especially at a time when the administration is proposing some pretty significant budget cuts and being seen by objective observers as de-emphasizing human rights issues as part of uh, the uh, portfolio of the administration. Thank you, Senator, for the question. I think the Human Rights Commission is uh, extremely important. Uh, the most important thing is that it's autonomous. It can't be controlled by a member state. It can't be controlled by the organization. It really has to be an organization that stands for justice and stands for human rights. Uh, my goal and my commitment is making sure that they have the adequate funding to carry out their mission. Obviously, Venezuela and other members in the OAS are trying to undermine their objectives. My goal, if I am confirmed, is to advocate making sure that they are properly funded, they are autonomous, and they're able to carry out their mission. Can you talk a little bit, using Venezuela as an example, what more might the OAS be able to do? What could you do? What could the United States do to help them uh, be more vigorous in trying to promote human rights um, and, and more peaceful resolution of challenges within Venezuela? Thank you for the question, Senator. I think one thing that they've done, uh, Secretary Almagro, having the hearings over the last three months and analyzing violations of human rights and having those forums in which dissidents could come and express their concerns and ultimately trying to build a case in which those people are referred to the Hague Commission for prosecution, I think it's a, an exceptional step forward uh, from the OAS and their prerogative. As I mentioned earlier to Senator Menendez, I think the ability of the OAS to really stand by their charter if they really believe in the inter-American democratic charter uh, and hold Venezuela accountable, making sure that they are held accountable for violating the charter. Um, and I think as the United States, I think the sanctions are very effective, the sanctions that we've passed against high-level officials. I think it's very important for us to try to deliver humanitarian aid. Obviously, it's being blocked by the Venezuelans, uh, but I think it's of the foremost important of people to have access to water and food and medicine, um, they're human rights that, that should always be upheld. I, um, I understand that Senator Menendez has already asked about this, but I am con uh, concerned about it as well. As a member of the Florida State Legislature, you had legislation that would have charged uh, undocumented immigrants with, with felony penalties under state law if they uh, re-entered the United States after deportation. And I'm, I'm wondering about that. Uh, there are penalties for reentering under uh, immigration law. What was your thinking about trying to, in addition, make that a state felony? Thank you for the question, Senator. The way it was originally drafted was never my intention. My intention was to uh, capture the illegal reentry and codify the state, the uh, federal statute. I was a prosecutor for four years in Miami, uh, and one thing that was always a bit concerning were individuals with final ICE deportation holds uh, being released. So there were people who were afforded due process, were released from either county jail or from state prison, uh, transported back to our local facilities, 48-hour ice hold, and ultimately they were released um, back in, in, into the residence. And they would be released because ICE would determine, uh, they would be notified, but they would, be, they would determine that there was no need to deport the individuals? 
They were released. Um, sometimes there was issues with communications between ICE and the county jails or the Department of Corrections. Um, there were multiple issues with the communications between the interagencies. When I, I'm just curious, when I, when I was governor, we had a very standard practice if somebody was in a jail or prison who was there um, and was undocumented, we would let ICE know before a release. And we would let ICE make the decision about whether somebody needed to be deported or whether there was some other sort of process that needed to be uh, engaged against them. And that was something we did as a matter of course. ICE usually, after checking someone's record, decided not to do anything and somebody would be released. But I'm just curious, when you say it wasn't, what exactly was your intention then in, in uh, making that a separate state level felony uh, if ICE had determined that the individual posed no uh, safety threat? My intention was that if the person was forcefully removed from the United States, not a person who voluntarily leaves and returns, a person who's forcefully removed, is exhausted all due process, has a final deportation order, and is removed, if they re-enter and commit a new offense, they will be held uh, for the additional crime of illegal re-entry, as to the state statute. As far as the ICE issue in Florida, there, there was some disconnect uh, based on communication in which individuals could only be held under state law for 48 hours. After 48 hours, they have to be released. If not, uh, their attorneys could file the writ of habeas corpus and have them released. So that, that was the issue I was trying to address. Mr. McClendon, let me ask you a question about Paraguay. It's a significant transshipment point uh, for cocaine uh, and, that, and all the attendant challenges, corruption, uh, limited government resources, effect on the public safety system. Um, I notice in budget submissions, well, first let me ask you this. What is your assessment of the steps that the government of Paraguay is taking to increase the capacity to, uh, to uh, interdict illicit drugs. Thank you for the question, Senator Kane. Uh, the Paraguayan government is, uh, is a strong partner and a good partner in the efforts regionally and bi bilaterally uh, to interdict uh, drug traffic uh, shipments, uh, as well as to interdict movements of money that are associated with drug trafficking. Uh, there are uh, clear sh shortcomings in, in ability, in, uh, in technology, in equipment, uh, in supplies, and a variety of other things. Embassy programs, interagency and energy uh, embassy programs uh, are working to address those, uh, uh, those shortcomings. They have been over a number of years, and we will continue to do those. If confirmed, I pledge that we will continue to work hard on these important issues. Paraguay is a, a transshipment country for cocaine, but it's also a source country for marijuana that circulates largely in South America. That's uh, another, uh, another subject of focus for them and something that is a lower priority for the United States, but still an important counter-narcotics priority. Mr. Chair, I have one more question, if I could continue before uh, maybe going to Senator Murphy on the on Paraguay. I, I noticed that the Trump administration has proposed eliminating USAID development assistance to Paraguay. Um, I, I've not visited Paraguay, but what I know about the country would suggest that there's still some very significant development needs where USAID could be helpful, and over the years, USAID, I think, has played a pretty important role um, working in tandem with the U.S. Embassy and other American officials in Paraguay. Um, how, was, how would the elimination of USAID development assistance uh, affect the relationship? Again, thank you for the question. USAID has uh, a, a long and proud history of work in Paraguay and a significant record of achievements working with Paraguayan counterparts to uh, advance our interests and goals in a variety of development ways. Um, you're correct that the, the current budget request for uh, development assistance funds is zero for next year and zero for the year after that. Um, this will have an impact on the programs that we're able to do on the, on the ground. There is money, however, in the pipeline. 
We will continue to use those funds. We will use the resources that are provided to us the very best we can to achieve uh, the goals that we can uh, in the country. In general terms, with regard to the bilateral relationship, um, we have a strong relationship with Paraguay, and I don't think the zeroing out over time of these funds will fundamentally affect that relationship. You have um, had a long career in the, in the uh, State Department and served in many positions, others in Latin America as well. I mean, as a general matter, uh, the USAID portfolio in these countries is a real is a, an important and productive part of the uh, American relationship with the countries wouldn't you agree uh, absolutely would agree sir currently where I serve in Venezuela it's an important uh, it's an important aspect it's an important uh, arrow in our quiver uh, it's an important tool in our toolbox it has been in all of the Latin American countries where I've served great thank you mr. chair Senator Murphy uh, thank you very much mr. chairman thank you to all four of you for your willingness uh, to serve uh, mr. Beerman wanted to, uh, to ask you a, a few questions about uh, future USAID investments uh, in uh, Europe and Eurasia um, you know I, I think many of us have a hard time understanding uh, the set of funding priorities being sent to us by the administration with respect to the challenges that we face in this region. Uh, there's no doubt that we need additional military capacity and we have stepped up to the plate through the Re Europe Reassurance Initiative. Um, uh, but many of the challenges that we face in the region are not conventional military challenges and there are massive soft power plays being made by our adversaries in the region. Uh, which cannot be met if this Congress were to adopt the um, draconian funding cuts being proposed by the administration. I won't ask you to opine on that budget, but I want to ask you about two specific challenges. First, the Balkans. I think you might have briefly touched on this, but I want you to do a little bit deeper dive uh, here. Russia, Turkey, and the Gulf states have initiated massive soft power offensives in the Balkans, and, and, and much of this coming just in 2017. The Russians have significantly doubled down in the Balkans over the last 10 months, um, having watched the United States telegraph uh, a withdrawal from that region, in part because of the budgets that have been submitted. Do um, you think the United States is currently doing enough in the Balkans to match these efforts, and what could we be doing better or differently? Uh, well, just to, uh, to qualify, I have not been involved with the budgetary talks um, but I do look as my, at my role as an advocate for the agency and our mission. Uh, I am a believer, having spent five years uh, under the previous uh, Bush administration, uh, at, in the same bureau. And uh, I wanted to come back to this specific job in this specific administration to, to help uh, guide the principles of development. Uh, look, I, I completely agree with what you're saying. I think we've got some, some serious issues um, in the Balkans, specifically, as I mentioned earlier, with youth unemployment. Uh, I think we've got some backsliding with democracy. We've got some issues with ethnic tensions. And I do believe that uh, the Russian malign influence is a serious problem, not just covertly, but openly. Uh, I think that our, prog our, our um, way forward is to work uh, openly with the governments, to work uh, openly with uh, govern uh, democracy and governance, with our uh, efforts to uh, uh, supply energy independence, through the entire region. I think we can also work with uh, economic development. We've got some great programs specifically in the Balkans. Uh, I know that specifically in Serbia, for instance, we have a, a program that has worked with the um, Serbian Ministry for Construction on 
helping Serbia jump their permitting process. And since our work in, in, in this particular area, they've jumped 103 places, which has spurred construction by 20%. And how does that impact? That impacts uh, Russian malign influence by giving people hope for the future and that their direction is uh, in a uh, Euro-Atlantic path. Um, then let's let's move to Ukraine for a, a moment. Um, USAID involved there in a number of different ways, uh, but um, our funding pales in comparison to the amount of very quiet um, money that's being put into Ukraine uh, through Russian sources. Um, talk a little bit about what we can be doing more of in Ukraine, maybe specifically with an eye towards some of the anti-corruption. Uh, programming that is still desperately needed at the local level as much as at the national level? Well, there, there definitely is still work to be done, but we actually have made a great deal of, of progress with our e-asset declaration system with the Ukrainian government and officials. It, it's open transparency, and it has given people confidence in their government. But we've also had uh, a tremendous amount of success with a Prozaro program, um, which cost about $2.2 million, and we have leveraged are uh, more than $1.25 billion. And that basically is an e-procurement system that allows uh, uh, opens and open and transparent uh, bidding on various uh, e-commerce throughout the, the government. And we have uh, provided technical assistance, and I think continued technical assistance, um, not just um, at, the, at the ministry level, but also at the local level. And I talked about this earlier. It's, it's very important that we... Um, we make every U Ukrainian understand that they can be involved with their government from the grassroots all the way to the national level. And, I, and if confirmed, I look forward to working with you, you, Senator, and the committee on how we can uh, be effective in our programs and, uh, and fight the, the, the influence uh, from Russia. Well, I uh, appreciate your testimony. I hope that you will end up being an advocate for increased funding in these accounts. I think, you know, in Ukraine, we need to come to the realization that uh, Putin does not want to militarily own Ukraine. He wants to create uh, enough confusion and dissension within the ranks uh, that he economically and politically breaks that country such that it decides that uh, the fight in the East is not worth the hassle and they should come to some accommodation with Moscow. That means that it's that political and economic support for the country that it is in many ways even more critical than the military support that we provide uh, to them, and that happens through USAID. It cannot happen uh, if we continue to have an administration that doesn't believe in the mission, but I'm glad that you're signing up for the job. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator. Senator Menendez? Chairman, I have two very quick questions and then uh, a comment. Uh, First, uh, to uh, Mr. McClenney, let me just say, I, as the only career nominee here today, uh, I want to thank you for your service. And I appreciate uh, those who are committed uh, to uh, the Foreign Service of the United States and have committed their lives to it. I think you promote America's interests abroad up front, so uh, incredibly important. I have a specific question as to your post to be. Human trafficking is something that both the chairman and I and the chairman of the full committee has a great passion about. We've passed legislation that I thought was incredibly important. I am concerned in different parts of the world about human trafficking. Uh, I'm concerned about it in Paraguay. Uh, could you speak to that in terms of one of your core missions? Uh, thank you, Senator Menendez, for the compliment on my service and also for the question about uh, trafficking in persons in Paraguay. 
Uh, yes, trafficking in persons is, uh, is a serious issue, a real issue in Paraguay. Uh, we produce an annual report on uh, developments in this subject matter in Paraguay. Uh, the most recent report makes it very clear that there remain uh, very serious concerns in prosecution of individuals who've been accused of such crimes, in prevention of further crimes being committed, and also in protection of uh, victims of these crimes. The Paraguayan government, however, has uh, recognized, under President Cartes, has recognized that this is an issue and is doing uh, some, is taking some steps and is working with us to advance on this. Not enough has been done. This clearly remains a priority and is something that we need to address uh, going forward. In and so can I glean from you a commitment to the committee that if you are approved, you'll make this one of your core missions and you're not going to equivocate on it as it relates to other issues we may be concerned with in Paraguay? If confirmed, sir, you have my firm pledge that this okay. will be one of our And I have a priorities. question for every nominee. Thank you for that answer. I have a question for every nominee that I've asked since uh, I've been on the committee when I was the chairman of the full committee, and, and now I still believe it's incredibly important because sometimes people forget. Um, if you are confirmed, this goes to every nominee, uh, will you commit that if the committee or its members uh, reach out to you and seek to get insights from your posts and positions, that you will share them freely with them? You can go down the line. Yes, sir. Yes, Senator. Yes, sir. I consider it my duty. Absolutely. Okay. And then finally, just a quick uh, comment. Uh, Admiral, you're extraordinarily competent for this position, but uh, you, you sort of like have an inside track here with me because your wife is a Jersey girl, <laughs> uh, and she was a Catholic school teacher in New Jersey, so that to me is a really, uh, really valuable. So I uh, just want you to know that in addition to your competency, that doesn't hurt. Uh, I appreciate Mr. Bierman's uh, commitment to the agency. Incredibly important for me. If I'm going to support somebody, I want to make sure they're supporting the agency they're assigned to. Uh, I appreciate, as I said to Mr. McClenney, the career commitment. And I generally have an affinity for Cubans, even when they are Republican. Uh, so, uh, so thank you all for your uh, commitment uh, to, uh, to, uh, to be willing to serve. And uh, uh, I may have some questions for the record. I would just urge you to respond to them as quickly as possible as the committee considers your nomination. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. We're headed for the finish line here, unless anybody else shows up. But I do want to touch on a couple more topics. Mr. McClenney, you know, and I'm going to paraphrase from the Congressional Research Service. You know, Paraguay is a significant transshipment point for Andean cocaine. Drug traffickers exploit its porous borders and extensive waterways. Uh, they've Paraguay's increased its capacity to interdict drugs and to conduct drug eradication and demand reduction activities. Their Congress has supported cooperation with the U.S. on counter-narcotics. They expanded their budget for primary counter-narcotics agency. Here's an article from earlier this year in the Miami Herald. In June of 2017, a Paraguayan man was charged in federal court in Miami with conspiring to smuggle cocaine through the Ciudad del Este airport with the intent to sell it in the United States. The individual charged had been extradited to the U.S. by the Paraguayan government on suspicion of using drug trafficking to raise funds for a Hezbollah network. In light of all of this, I, um, I don't ask you to opine on its wisdom um, because I don't want to put you in that predicament, uh, but I do want to ask you, the President's 2018 foreign aid request for Paraguay would reduce our assistance to $400,000. That's a 95% cut compared to 2016, and this funding is primarily for military training and traditional development programs. Would that sort of cut, if enacted, which I don't believe it would be, but if it does, will it make it harder or easier for us to work with Paraguay to confront these challenges if we, if we had a 95% cut like that? 
I don't think it'll make it harder for us to work with them because there's a willingness on the part of their government to work with us, but it will make it harder for us to make an impact and make a difference in this regard. Clearly, we would all rather have more rather than less. There are finite limits. I can pledge to you, though, Senator, if confirmed for this position, that we will wisely steward the resources that we're given to make as much of an impact as we possibly can. And Representative Trujillo on the OAS, and I think that the ranking member alluded to this, we go back, you know, the, one of the things that undermines the OAS any international organism is the inability to take action. And it's been very frustrating to a lot of people to see 20 members representing, I think it's like 90% of the GDP of the Western Hemisphere vote to condemn what's happened in Venezuela, which is a direct violation of the very reason why the OAS exists, and that's to protect democracy. And the inability to get a handful of smaller nations to come on board for a variety of reasons. In the Caribbean, St. Vincent and Grenadine, Dominica, St. Kitts and Nevis, have all voted uh, to support Venezuela against efforts by the other countries uh, to confront them. And then you've had a series of abstentions from places like Haiti and the Dominican Republic, uh, Trinidad and Tobago, Grenada, et cetera. This is very frustrating. And in particular, it's frustrating when you view this list and you see in the case of, for example, Haiti and the Dominican Republic nations who receive significant assistance from the United States, but have chosen for a variety of reasons, primarily financial in my opinion, to line up on behalf of a dictatorship and basically call into question the very purpose of the OAS if it can't take collective action. And so I guess my question is, in regards to that, how do you balance between maintaining friendly relationships and not wanting to be the, a threatening power that goes in and tells them we're going to cut off your money unless you vote with us, and at the same time, justifying to the American taxpayer while we continue to pour money into the coffers of governments who in turn go to international organisms and vote against us in violation, for example, of the democracy they enjoy and of the very purpose of the organization in which they serve. And, and, and the, I guess the central, question, central question is, if the OAS is not able to take collective action against such clear-cut violations of the democratic order, why do we have an OAS? Is that not a central long-term challenge? Thank you, Senator. I think it's the greatest challenge. The Petro-Caribbean countries siding with Venezuela is the biggest challenge. It undermines the entire goal of the organization, an organization that's, to, that's committed to democratic values, that's committed to security, that's committed to human rights, in which you have a country that clearly could not be a bigger violator of those three pillars, and countries within the organizations that support them. Um, I think that's central, and it's the biggest challenge I'll face. I think one thing that the Senator brought up, and obviously it's in, under Congress's purview, but the ability to influence trade and influence economic sanctions and influence uh, aid. I think those are great tools in our toolbox that we could ultimately bring out if necessary in order to have some of these countries reconsider their position. Admiral, more open-ended question, but Norway obviously because it shares a 120-mile land border and a 14-mile maritime border with, with Russia, they're up close to this issue and have been historically for a very long time throughout the Cold War and beyond both from your military background and now entering the diplomatic world, is there anything that Norway does that we can learn from, anything they do particularly well with regards to Russia? Are there any lessons to be learned about how they deal with Russia that could be applied to the broader European theater and or the United States? Well, thank you, Senator, very much for the question. Um, it, Norway's in a much different situation, of course, than the United States is. Uh, uh, they're not a superpower. Uh, they are not viewed by the Russians as a great threat. Um, they are, in fact, um, have been a good neighbor uh, to the Russians, working uh, through uh, Arctic Council initiatives. Um, of course, they share uh, fishery in interests. Um, there's border patrol, search and rescue. Um, but 
as you well know, sir, uh, the Norwegians are very wise to the ways of Russia, their interests. Um, as Senator Menendez had indicated earlier, uh, their interests around the globe um, are, um, can be suspicious. Um, the Norwegians engage directly. Um, I uh, believe the United States uh, could probably uh, be a little more direct. Um, and perhaps there is a way that we could partner with the Norwegians. Um, I think the Arctic Council, sir, is a good start. Um, there are uh, numerous interests there, uh, both on behalf of the Russians as well as the United States, as well as every member of the Council. And uh, I would intend, uh, if so confirmed, sir, to continue that, uh, be very proactive in our engagement with the Arctic Council um, and our relationship with Norway, sir. Finally, uh, Mr. Bierman, my question for you is kind of a a variation of the same question I asked Mr. McClenney, and that is, if you look at the President's fiscal year 2018 budget request for assistance to Europe and Eurasia, it was significantly less than the fiscal year 2016's actual funding. And it comes at a time in which Putin, and I don't say Russia, I say Putin, because this is, Russian people aren't doing this, it's Putin who's made this decision, are increasingly trying to interfere in the Western democratic order, particularly in Europe. And so, in the context of that and of the necessity to be helpful to our allies in the region, I'm not asking you to opine on the wisdom. That's a policy determination. I'm not trying to get you cross with the administration. But I guess my view is, is such a reduction in funding, would it be helpful? And I think I know the answer, but would it be helpful or hurtful to our efforts uh, to uh, increase our ability to cooperate and, and assist allies in the region in need of that assistance? Well, well, thank you very much for that question, Senator. And I, again, although I have not uh, worked directly with this administration and the agency on the budget, I do look forward to working with you specifically as we move ahead. And I'm not trying to avoid that question. I think it's a matter of making the argument as to uh, why assistance and development matters. And uh, I look forward to, to making that argument, to looking historically as to our successes. We've seen some great successes. We want to make sure that our investment in the past is an investment uh, that continues into the future. And uh, I'm excited about that opportunity. And I can tell you have my commitment. Well, to all the nominees uh, in a different context, to, the two, to the, the two that are going to particular countries and to you, Mr. Bierman, that's going to be involved in a programmatic effort in a larger region, and of course, to Mr. Trujillo, who's going to hopefully be representing us in a broader multinational forum. The challenge when it comes to aid is, is this, the fundamental question a lot of Americans ask. First of all, they think it's like 30% of our budget when it's less than 1%. But the others are the perception that foreign aid is charity, that we're doing this um, like a charity contribution. And it, the harder argument, the one we need to make, is that these contributions that we make, appropriately channeled, and we don't want the money being corruptly used, uh, is actually has both national security and soft power elements to it. it. This is good for America to do this. It's actually cheaper than the alternative. You know, if we could help Paraguay, if we could help Central America, if we could help these nations confront, for example, transnational crime and the flow of illicit drugs, uh, we could save theoretically a lot of money in the back end fighting that when it reaches the homeland. So it's a challenge that all of you will face, uh, perhaps a little bit less in Norway, though certainly in the military uh, scope and the wisdom of NATO, it's relevant. And it's one that I hope all of you will be forceful advocates for. Again, we're not talking about wasting money. We're not talking about giving money to people that don't need it. But we are talking about why spending a dollar at the front end in helping capacitate countries could save us a lot of money at the back end when those problems 
reach us here. And I hope all, all of you will be uh, engaged in, in that effort if confirmed. So I want to thank all of you, unless Senator Menendez has anything else, I want to thank all of you for being here, for your families uh, sitting through this uh, hearing. I appreciate it as well. Uh, the fact that you didn't get the full committee here is not bad news, it's good news. They know you're here, they know your nomination, they've read it, and obviously uh, they, uh, they, a lot of them feel comfortable about it or they'd be here asking tough questions. And to the members that came, I thank them because their questions were important. It's really good hearing. So again, I thank you for your service and your willingness to continue to serve. The record of this hearing will remain open until the close of business on Friday. And without objection, this hearing is adjourned.